I've always wanted to do when I was going to speak or share in any situation was to make sure that I knew and understood as best I possibly could everything about whatever the subject was that I was going to be speaking about. Whether you go back in my life as a school teacher or back when I was a sales rep for Relco and a couple other companies or as a pastor, you'd like to make sure you understand completely what you're talking about. So I'm going to confess right off the top this morning that I do not understand completely what I'm going to be talking about today. And I do not think there's anybody alive that understands what I'm going to be talking about today in its fullness, in its completeness. I think this is beyond human understanding. And what that is is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. At a subtitle when words just aren't sufficient. And the more I studied about the holiness of God, the more convinced I am that words aren't sufficient. And I've also convicted in the sense that I don't think, well, I don't think, I know the reality of the holiness of God does not have the impact on my life that it should. And I think after we share a little bit today, maybe you'll agree with that in your own situation. The holiness of God. Even though it's probably not possible to fully understand it, I believe what we see in Scripture reveals to us that we need to understand it as best we can. Because, as we're going to see, there is a commands in the Scripture in more than one place, Old Testament and New, that commands us to be holy as he is holy. And if I don't understand at all what it means when I say he is holy, how in the world are we supposed to understand what, what it's supposed to look like in our lives when it says we are to be holy as he is holy? I'm going to read a couple sections of Scripture, one, one from the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah and then one in the New Testament from the book of Revelation. And the writers of these two little segments of Scripture are the prophet Isaiah, who had been proclaiming the name of the Lord and proclaiming the word of the Lord as a prophet for many years when he had a vision. And John, one of the disciples, the Apostle John, who obviously had been serving the Lord for most of his life when he had this vision. And Isaiah and John were both allowed in some manner that we don't really understand to see the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1, There was a king who had just died, King Uzziah, and he had started out and he'd been a fabulous godly king. And towards the end of his reign, it wasn't so good. And the people were starting to stray. And the Lord speaks to Isaiah to speak to the people. And in this time, he gives him this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah's immediate response starts in verse 5. Woe to me, 
I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. I'll talk about this a little bit and make reference to it as we go on. I want to read first from Revelation, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And this is John, the Apostle John. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped, saying, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, all who live and to all who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. What an amazing scene both Isaiah and John were allowed to see and to witness. And if you think about this a little bit, you know, these angels, these seraphs that Isaiah talked about, these were sinless creatures. And yet when they saw the holiness of God, they covered their eyes, their faces with two of their wings. Most most theologians say that's because they were of the proximity of the glory of God. They had to cover their eyes. They covered their feet. And again, many theologians agree that the feet are considered unclean. Even the pure angels who have never sinned were covering their faces, covering their feet in the presence of the holiness of God. And immediately, what happened to Isaiah? Isaiah, a godly man. If we'd have been living in that day and we were a familiar With the prophet Isaiah, we'd have said there's probably none like him walking around the earth today. And yet immediately when he saw this picture, this revelation of the holiness of God, he cried out, woe is me. He immediately sensed in the presence of the holiness of God how little holiness there was in him. An immediate response that only could be dealt with through his confession and repentance and the coal And the words atonement for us, a picture of Christ's atoning power. And in Revelation, and again, when I think back in Isaiah before I go on, I I think it says these flying around, and it doesn't tell us how many were flying around, these seraphims. But it's like they're crawling and shouting out to one another. It's almost as if we were going to say, you know, shout over here, holy, 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 to this group over here. And they would shout holy, holy back and forth and back and forth. The heavens resounding with this noise that shook the temple of God. And in the Revelation, when John's vision, what he sees is these 
24 elders that are seated around the throne of God. When they over the words, holy, 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 were sung, and the praise and glory went up to the throne, it says they fell prostrate before the God, before the Lord, at his holiness. Why such an amazing response? Because of the holiness of God. So what does it mean to call God holy? And this is where words fall short. But I hope that we can get a sense of the holiness of God because it should change us, impact us, impact the way we live our lives for him. When we look at the words used in the Hebrew and in the Greek, in the Hebrew it's kadash and it's hagios in the Greek. When we look at these words, it gives us two kind of aspects of God's holiness. The first aspect has to do with his greatness, just how great he is. One of the meanings of this word holy means to be separate. It means almost to be cut and set apart from. It means to be taken and be unique. It's telling us that God is a unique one of a kind above all else. Before anything else existed, before water, land, plants, animals, insects, you or me, before anything else existed, he did. He's above all creation. That's why it's impossible for words to be sufficient to explain who he is and his holiness. He's above it all. He's unique, utterly unique. He is totally incomparable and he, does have, he has no peers. He is without peer. There is none like him. I'm going to be sharing some scriptures that we go through just to give you the scriptures or some of the scriptures to support these things. In Isaiah 40, verse 25, it says that God is speaking. And he says, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal? He's talking to his people and he says, Come on, you guys. Who are you going to worship? Who are you going to compare me to? There is no one, there is nothing like me. I am, I am. He's one of a kind. He's in a class all by himself. Sometimes, and I hope not us, but sometimes it's like we put God kind of on this pedestal, which he deserves, but it's the wrong pedestal. We kind of think him as the ideal version of us. What we could be if we were just perfect. We could never be perfect. We could never be him. We were created in his image. We're to be transformed in the image of Christ, but we will never, ever be God, no matter what. Nothing will. No one will. He is one of a kind. There is no one like him. He's in this class all by himself. Think about this for a second. He is subject to nothing or no one. Now, can you imagine being subject to nothing and to no one? When you first say it, I thought it was, wow. Wow, that would be cool. But can you imagine if that was any human being? If it was any human being, it would not work. Because we are corrupted. There has been sin. We are not God. He is the one of a kind. 
In 1 Samuel 2.2 2, it says, There was no one, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. You're it. He's it. There is nothing else. There's no one like him. There's nothing to compare him to. What would you compare God to? Nothing. Because there's nothing like him. No matter how perfect we would ever get, we're never going to be like him. When we get to heaven, we are not going to be God's. We're never going to be like him. The angels who have never sinned, who are flying around the throne of God, are never going to be like him. It's impossible. He's it. He's God. In Hosea 11, verse 9, it says, For I am God, not a man. I am the Holy One among you. Can you imagine if we had that kind of power and authority? We would so mess it up. Because we are not by nature holy. So this first aspect or first picture we get of God's holiness is the idea of his greatness, his uniqueness, his separateness. The second one is the one we probably think of more often, the idea of his purity. That he is totally pure. In Habakkuk 1 verse 13 It says this, your eyes are too pure to even look on evil. You cannot even tolerate wrongdoing. You can't do it. He can't do it. It's not even in him to do it because he's holy, totally pure. In James 1, verse 13, for God cannot even be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted by evil. Usually when I've come across that verse, I'm thinking, well, the temptation comes, but he's not enticed by it because he's better than me. No, he can't be tempted by evil because there's nothing dark in him. He is totally good. He is totally pure. He is totally righteous. I tried to think of something like the refining process of gold that we call, oh, there, it's pure gold. Is there anything that we can get that pure? the best that we could do, but we're never going to have anything like God. He can't even be tempted by evil because it isn't in him at all. He's perfect. He is without sin. He is flawless, completely flawless. Flawless. He always does the right thing. Wouldn't that be nice? A good thing. It's a good thing that this describes him if he's in control of everything. If we only had his greatness without his purity, it'd be like a dictator. But because of his greatness and because of his purity, it makes a perfect God. He's unstained in any way by sin, and he is uncompromising towards sin. And as I say, when, when, when I start to meditate on these kinds of things, it just is so convicting He is uncompromising towards sin. How do we do just in that area? How far and how much do we compromise in the area of sin? He's holy. So the two aspects is greatness and purity. And it's interesting in both Isaiah and and in Revelation, when the angels start singing, It's holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. 
three times, holy, holy, holy. There is no other attribute of God. There's no other characteristic of God where it's declared three times like that anywhere in the Scripture. You never read about his love, love, love. God is merciful, merciful, merciful. God is compassionate, compassionate, compassionate. But you do read God is holy, holy, holy. And the significance of that can easily be missed. Most of us know when the Bible, when anything's in the Bible, if it's in the Bible, it's important. Amen? Amen. Now, if it's in the Bible and it's repeated twice, pay attention. However important it was when it's repeated once, it's more important when it's repeated twice. And when it's repeated three times, you better get it. And actually, if we understand the language a little bit, with this repetition, it is a Hebrew thing. In the Hebrew language, there's this unique way of expressing comparativeness and superlatives. Comparatives are repeated twice. Superlatives are repeated, repeated three times. This holy, holy, holy has a word or a name to describe it. It's called a trihagion, T-R-I-H-A-G-I-O-N. Hagios is the word holy. It's something that tells us this is the ultimate. God is. The angels are declaring this is the separate one. This is the separated one. This is the unique one. This is the one that there's no one else like. This is Him. This is God. He is pure. He is righteous. He is holy. He is flawless. That's what He is holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. When I think about the concept of God's greatness and his purity that is proclaimed when they declare holy, 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 the question that I ask is, how does that relate to me? How does that relate to you? How does that relate to us? If God is really holy, as the Bible says he is, and he can't even look upon evil, how in the world do you and I come to him? How do we do it? In Hebrews twelve fourteen. Should cause us to search for an answer. In Hebrews twelve fourteen, it says, "Make every effort to live in peace with all men and be to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Make peace with all men and be holy." Is it even possible for you and me to be holy? Well, if you don't know a little bit about Jesus, you might say, no, it isn't possible. But the reality is, not only is it possible, it's a requirement. We are required to be holy. That verse I just read in first in. Uh, Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And I also had a thought, this is kind of nothing to do with where I'm at, but can you imagine when Isaiah saw the Lord? When John saw the Lord? When the 24 elders were looking on the holiness of God? When the seraphims were looking on the holiness of God? And how they responded? How would we respond? Sometimes when I talk and just kind of off the cuff with people and we're visiting and say, well, can you hardly wait to, to get to heaven? 
man, to look upon the throne of God. How awesome, how fun, how, oh, oh, that's going to be great. My first thought usually isn't falling prostrate before the Lord and worshiping him because of his holiness. Is it possible? Yes, it's a requirement. 1 Peter 1, verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as, we who, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. The difference between God and us, well, one of many, is he is inherently holy. And we're not inherently holy. We only become holy. Get this. We only become holy in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here who has never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you will never, ever be holy until you do. That's where it starts for us as human beings. Our holiness is only in Christ. In the New Testament, it continually emphasizes the pursuit of holiness in the world. We're to pursue it. We're to cast off that old self. We're to remind ourselves that we're dead to sin. There's this role we have to play in pursuing holiness, and it's a holiness that will never be really attained in the, na- in the natural until we're in another world, until we're in heaven. But there is this holiness that becomes ours when we are born again. Sometimes it's referred to as positional holiness. And thank God we are positionally holy. You know, God demands holiness. And for us in our own strength, it is impossible. Positional holiness is inherited the moment you are born again by the Spirit of God. What does that mean, positional holiness? It means in the position I am as a child of God, I am holy because of the righteousness of Christ. Jesus took our sin, so to speak, and gave us his righteousness. It's like if our, if our sin could be looked at as a cloak that covered us completely, he t- we took it off, he took it off of us, and he put it on himself at the cross, and he took off his cloak of righteousness and he put it on us. So positionally, when God looks at Mike and he looks at you, he doesn't see Mike and his filthiness, his dirtiness, his sinfulness. He doesn't see any of that. What he sees is the righteousness of Christ. Positionally, that's who we are. That's what allows us to have an intimate relationship with our Father God. That's what allows us to boldly yet reverently go to the throne of grace because of who we are positionally. And then there's that thing called practical holiness. And this is the practical holiness, is the holiness that we're, we're commanded to pursue as Christians. We should be continually desiring and doing all that we can to become more holy. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, it says this, Since we have these promises, my dear friends, let us purify ourselves. There's a role we have to play. Positionally, we're there. Practically, we're not. It says, purify yourself from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We are to perfect holiness in our lives out of a reverence for God. Romans 6, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, 
Count yourselves, consider yourselves, remind yourselves, remember you're dead to sin if you've accepted Jesus Christ. Consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And the key word is obey. We are all going to be tempted. We're all going to face temptations of all, every kind. But he says, do not obey those temptations. In other words, when the lust of the flesh starts to rise up in you, kill it and remember it's dead. Pursue our holiness. Verse 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. The totality of who we are, but he makes specific mention of our physical bodies which makes a clear picture for us or paints a clear picture for us of immorality and sexual immorality, sexual sin. Do not let the parts of your body, don't let the lust of the flesh cause us to sin. Crucify, kill that flesh. Now this is important, the next couple things I'm going to tell you because depending what kind of filter you're taking all of this in with, it could get real legalistic in your head. But it's not about legalism. It's not about you and I becoming holy and the first thing you're assigned to do is make a long list of the do's and the don'ts so you can work your way through that list and become holy. That's not what's being talked about here at all. It does not mean to make that list. In Romans 6.14 it says this, For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. We are free from the letter of the law. If you know the scripture that says the letter of the law does what? It kills. It kills. This is not about legalism. As I read in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it says this. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We are now encouraged and commanded to live according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in us. You know, he gave his ancient people, he gave them the Ten Commandments. And if that wasn't enough, then he sat down in Leviticus and he gave Moses a whole long list of do's and don'ts. And he did it so they would become holy? No. He did it to prove that they could never be holy by following the rules and the regulations and your list of do's and don'ts. I mean, you can make a really short list of do's and don'ts and it probably won't last more than a day or two. It won't work. He's saying we're no longer under the law. We are under grace. But even under grace, it says pursue holiness. Consider yourself dead to the lusts of the flesh. Do all that you can to live holy lives which bring glory and honor to God. In The Galatians 5.16, So I say to you, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Now, think about this for a second. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is pure, holy, and righteous. God the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in me. If I am led by the Holy Spirit, am I going to sin? Am I going to give in to the lusts of the flesh? No. Problem is, I sometimes ignore him. 
when he speaks. And sometimes we sin out of ignorance. But in either case, we are under grace and we are positionally holy because we've been born again by the Spirit of God. When we are positionally holy, our salvation is secure because of Christ. It's not by works, lest any man should boast. It's because of Christ. But because of what he has done for us, and because of who he is, his greatness, his holiness, because of who he is in terms of his purity, his holiness, we should have this growing, overwhelming desire to have awe and reverence for him and to live a way that would bless him. Live a life of holiness as a focus. Not allowing guilt and shame and condemnation to come in when we mess up, because you will. But where's my heart? What is it we want to do? Do we want to live holy? Do we want to live righteous? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? You know, I sometimes hear people that say they're Christians, but they don't want to give up this, that, or the other thing. And they're obviously sins. But they kind of like them. And if you and I are honest with ourselves or anybody else, we have sins we kind of like. What's it worth to stay pure and holy? To be as righteous? Is it possible to be holy since only God is holy? The answer is yes. What God's holiness demands, His grace provides. Isn't that awesome? Think about that. What His holiness demands of us, His grace provides it to us. There will be no one who is not holy that will ever be able to come to me, but in my grace I provide Jesus Christ. My grace is sufficient. The provision is there. We can now stand before God in a righteousness that really is not our own. It's His righteousness. We can stand before Him forgiven and accepted, granted sonship and daughtership, if you would, and with all the privileges and all the promises because of grace. And if God was gracious enough to redeem us from sin and death and to give us a new life in Christ, it would really seem that the very least we can do is offer our lives back to Him. Surrender, devotion, holiness. And the really amazing thing is the more we do that, the more we're blessed. God's got this crazy economy. We think we're sacrificing and he blesses us more. We think we're depriving ourselves of something and we discover we were blessed more than we ever could have imagined. It's a crazy, amazing economy of God. So how precious is our purity? How important is it to actively pursue holiness? How precious to each one of us is our intimacy with God? I want to close this morning with a story that you may have heard before. I don't know that I've shared it. If I did, it was a long time ago. It's about a little animal called an ermine. Sometimes it's just called a weasel. But in the forests of northern Europe and Asia lives a little animal called an ermine. And this ermine is known for its snow-white fur in the winter. And an interesting thing about the ermine is that it instinctively protects its white coat against anything 
that would soil it. Fur hunters take advantage of this unusual trait of the ermine. They don't set a snare to try to trap it, but instead they look for their homes where they live. Usually it's in the cleft of a rock or in the hollow part of a tree. And because of this instinct in the ermine to stay pure, they soil the entrance and the interior of their home. And then they turn the dogs loose. And they let the dogs run and scare the ermine, and the ermine's in fear and scare. They're scared or scared of the dogs. Their, their life, very life is at risk. They run to their home. But because their instinct is so strong to stay pure, they will not go into their home to soil their fur. Rather than soil that white coat, the ermine will allow itself to be trapped by the dogs and captured while it's preserving its purity. For the ermine, purity is more important than life. How important is purity to us as children of God? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit you will help us to understand and comprehend what is impossible with our natural mind, the holiness of God, that you are holy, holy, holy. That the angels cover their faces as they're singing these songs and the 24 elders fall prostrate before the throne. God, that we would understand your holiness, your greatness, your purity, that our understanding would bring us to a place of total surrender. God, that we would do all that we can to pursue holiness by grace. Lord, I thank you so much that a holiness that will allow us into the kingdom of God is not dependent upon us, but it's a gift of grace because of Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here that does not know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior that they would not be content to live wondering if they're really saved. They would not be content to hope that one day they go to heaven. God, your word says that we may know the truth, and that truth is what sets us free. So I pray, God, for anyone here this morning that they would acknowledge their sinfulness and acknowledge your holiness and the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross him taking our sin and giving us his righteousness and that we would surrender our life to you and live to bring you glory. Help us in our human weaknesses by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear your Holy Spirit. Father, you tell us in your word that you will not only give us the desire to do the right thing by your spirit, but you will give us the ability to do the right thing by your spirit. Help me, help us to value purity because of the relationship that it enables us to have with you. And Father, now I do pray over each one of us here that you keep us safe, watch over us wherever it is we might go. I pray that you would help us to share the good news of the gospel that others that we would come across could know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Let your love flow through us. Let your love flow through us. 
We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.